once again, everyone. Welcome to episode 26 of the Drunk Friend Podcast. As always, we're your host. I'm Travis. That guy over there is Alex. And Alex, dude, I've uh, been looking. I got my I got my YouTube feed up here and uh, scrolling, 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 scrolling. I see Metal Jesus. He's talking about the ZX Spectrum. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. He's fat, I guess. Scrolling, scrolling. <laughs> There's no SNES drunk for weeks. What's happening? You all right over there? Totally fine. Um, yeah, my real job is is kind of busy, and I don't know. I just I, I wanted a real break. My first break in July didn't really feel like a break at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, this this is this is a real break where I'm really kind of taking a break. I'm not writing anything. I'm playing um, a lot of 3ds actually, and I don't have. I, even if I wanted to do a review on that stuff, I don't have a way of uh, capturing footage from that. You know, you um, could, you so could I, just record you playing a 3DS like on a couch, like really far away, and just have that with the dogs walking by on occasion, and like Pearl bringing you a drink and walking away. But you talk over it like it's just a regular review. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, that could work. Yeah, <laughs> I think that would need to be its own channel. But yeah, that would that would work. It would be like an Ashens type thing. I, I still wouldn't show my face. It would just be my hands and like the game boy and the dogs of course but but yeah that that could potentially work yeah it's like a snes voyeurism thing somebody people will subscribe <laughs> to that they will be into it <laughs> they probably would um yeah i played uh i, I got a, a few new games uh, well new to me <laughs> um Ma- uh, metroid samus returns has been fun um and it's your classic metroid stuff you know it's as good as some of the metroidvania or as I call them, as I snobbishly call them, exploration platformers. <laughs> um, they uh, I call I, them castle roids. Yeah, I still uh, um, castle. <laughs> I still think those uh, are better. Uh, Metroid does it better than all those people. All due respect to um, what do you call it? To games like uh, uh, I almost called it Sleepy Hollow, uh, Hollow Knight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and games like that. They're they're all very very good, but. It's Metroid just just hits the right spot for me. I think uh, a lot of it has to do with Samus, and she just looks like such a badass. Yeah, and that suit is awesome. All the powers you get are just cool. Um, yeah, and I, I I'm stuck in area number two so far. I've only I still have about thirty more Metroids to destroy. Um, I th- it feels like I soft locked myself in this in this uh, particular area because I'm trying to reach the elevator to get out of this area and I can't get there and I don't know what else Ooh. I can do. But I guess that's that's the allure of Metroid. Games. It is, right? Like, okay. I, I, I like that when it's like, okay, I've, I've expelled every option. What am I missing? Like, yeah. when I get to that question, and in especially those early Metroids, it's always kind of a... Where most games I'm frustrated because I know they fucked me over. In Metroid, <laughs> I know it's something clever I haven't thought of yet and that's the fun thing. Yeah, yeah, and they do a nice job uh, not being too deliberate with what power you need to use. Like, for example, there is a uh, a rolling ball. Uh, I'm not even sure what the game calls it. It's it's uh, it allows you to roll uh, on the walls and ceilings. Oh, like the spider. I think it's called spider something. Yeah, spider ball. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know the game, you you get the power, and then the game gives you a very simple way of like, oh, I, I need to be using this here to get to this next boss. And um, but after that, it it the game does a really nice job. Like that, it's not telegraphing every instance of where you need to use that. You need to remember that you have it later on, so you can uh, bust it out at the the appropriate time. Which I they do such a good job with stuff like that. 
Um, so I'm enjoying that game. So I gotta ask, is that is that a faithful like one for one of the original Game Boy, or is it the Game Boy recipe? But it's definitely like it's it's got its own modern flourishes to it. Oh, it definitely has modern flourishes. Okay, uh, it's it's got uh, the map on the bottom screen updating in real time. Um, it makes it makes great use of all every button on the, on the 3ds, which is I always I always love. I hate when games don't use buttons. It's like you you, you got to go to a menu to get this thing. Oh, yeah. Like, what about this button right here? I hate stuff like that. As a SNES man, you you see that L and R button ignored all yeah. the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or or games like Bill Ambeer's Combat Basketball, where the only <laughs> button is B. Somehow it has to idiots. come up. It has to come up. Ugh. But um, <laughs> no, yeah. It's 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 modernized for sure, and it's all new stuff, and. Um, yeah, it's it's really fun. I like it, and of course, all the all the bells and whistles and all the environments and all that stuff, cool, um, are awesome. In addition to that, I did get also pick up uh, Super Mario 3D Land. I've played it before, and it's really good. And uh, we got a bit contentious when I brought it up to you because I was like, I wish this was what Mario 64 was. Oh, and you were like, whoa, pump the brakes, son. Easy, easy. What do you, you wish yeah. my childhood was different? Is that what I just heard you say? <laughs> <laughs> I just there's certain stuff about it. I could pick, fl- I could pick apart and nitpick flaws and oh sure, just about yeah. every N64 game. Like once you get to the desert stages in uh, in Mario and you start like the game starts opening up. Once you get to some of the platforming, oh, it's just such a pain. No, I I and agree, I agree. I I definitely I have an affinity for it. purely nostalgic. I mean, I think it's a great game and maybe one of the best ones. It's definitely a top two or three on that system. Uh, but that's not saying a whole lot, per, you know, because the N64 didn't it didn't age well. But man, I, I do have a soft spot for that game. It might be the first game I hundred percented. Like as a kid, I got like all the stars, oh. all the coins. Like I was in love with it. And yeah, nice. maybe it was because the, it was the only N64 game I had for like two years. <laughs> but still, yeah, that's pretty cool. Can't debate. That, I mean, a modern, you know, the 3D 3D Land is probably you know shades yeah. better. Yeah. They've got they've got the hang of like how to combine 3D and 2D now. Platforming is much uh, more player friendly, and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I'm really I'm uh, that I'm I'm sticking with Metroid for now. I'm tempted to switch over, um, and I, I'm a one game at a time uh, type person when it comes to playing newer stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I want to make sure I finish or at least get as far as I can in Metro in Samus Returns. Then go go to Mario. Then I also got Monster Hunter Four Ultimate, and uh, I've never really spent a whole lot of time in these games. I just thought it looked interesting. Yeah, and it's something different. And I all the stuff I own for 3DS is all like first party practically. Like I've got uh, Link Between Worlds, which is excellent. I've got Star Fox, which is excellent. I got Mario Sports Superstars. I've got Mario Golf, um, and then I've got like Bravely Default and Chrono Trigger and Plants vs Zombies and stuff like that, and Radiant Historia. And it's like I have too much Nintendo property. I would rather have try something different that's also well reviewed. So I'm interested to see how what that's like. Yeah, I know that uh, th- those are like they have the mo- some of the most addictive loops in games, and they're super long. But it's like you'll play it for like sixty hours and be like, you know, you you'll wake up in a trance in a ditch somewhere with a full beard and wonder who's president. Like it's <laughs> it's that kind of game, uh, which is why I've stayed away from it. People love it too much, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so, 
but yeah, yeah that's why i've had to stay away from like games like world of warcraft because i know i'll love them but, yeah uh, yeah exactly but, but yeah you uh um posted a video on wednesday for dungeon magic which uh has a lot of dungeons and a lot of magic yeah boy does it yeah it definitely does uh it's a game and, and actually it's funny we have a question coming up that kind of alludes to this this whole topic of a first person rpg uh on the nes and there aren't many and I, this is the first one I've reviewed. And I want to say, like, when I look at the NES, like, by the time things got to the, by the time companies at least got to the Super NES, you know, they, they, sh- they should know better, you know? Like, <laughs> y- you know what I mean? Like, there's some things it's like, why are you still doing this? But I feel like for the NES, I can give a pass for some things where it's like, you know, they tried it. And it didn't work out perfectly, but there's some good ideas here. And that's kind of how nope. I feel about Dungeon Magic. Like, they tried yeah. a first-person uh 3D exploration game, pseudo 3D, of course. Everything is very 2D. You can, you, walls are, are millimeters thick. But, uh, and it, it work, it runs fast. Like, you can move across the screen pretty fast. It doesn't, it doesn't load. Like, you don't move forward a tile and it loads that and move forward. Like, you can move around pretty fast. Like, that I think I appreciate. Uh, but the, the game itself just, it lacks so much. It needs a little hand holdiness that I think modern games are still trying to balance. Sometimes they hold your hand too much. They're like, you know, here's exactly where you need to go and exactly what you need to do. And there's nothing for you to figure out. You're just basically following a waypoint and smashing attack. Uh, but in this one, it, it it really just needed a little more, you know, tutorialization for what it could do back then. I don't know, but it needed something to help you along because I think once I figured it out, it wasn't that bad. But there's so many systems mm. at play that it's it's uh, it's a little too much. It's a little too ambitious for the NES. So I'm like, I forgive it for for trying because it, it's it, it it for what it is, it's okay, but it's not fun. Like it didn't hold up past like a week after it came out. But I can see what they were trying to do, and for that, <laughs> I I want to pat them on the back and say, good try, buddy. But you just uh, yeah. What what killed me when I saw the video was the way stuff just pops up out of nowhere. Like oh, you'll, yeah. you'll be looking at this endless horizon. And then it's like trees, yeah. <laughs> and it's like brick wall, and it's not even it's not even going across the whole screen. It's just like a section of the screen, and it just looks not great. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things where they they did the best they could with uh, the for the time, and yeah, it's it's an interesting game, I guess. But it's not for everyone. Yeah, it's not completely unplayable, but you won't have fun playing it if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we do have an, we have an email though that kind of goes right up that alley, and uh, this is from Carl, who says Carl yeah. with a K. By the way, I always want to point that out. There's a lot of C Carls out there. This is a K Carl. They're they're different. They don't like each other. I just want to point that out. So this is a K <laughs> Carl. He says hello once again, drunk friends. Uh, I saw Alex saying that Swans is one of his favorite bands on Twitter. This made me very happy, being a huge Swans fan myself. Well, that must be t- that makes two of you guys. Uh, f- <laughs> for such a band with such a big and somewhat eclectic discography, what are your top three records? I like Soundtracks for the Blind, White Light, and To Be Kind Myself. Oxygen is one of the best tracks ever. So I'll stop there, Alex. What do you think are your favorite Swans records? I think he accidentally capitalized myself at the end there. The, to be kind is is oh, the name of the okay. album. All right, I'm not um, a Swans fan, so that's a that's a new I, mistake I got, on my I part. Gotta be, I gotta be, I gotta be, yeah, pedantic man about that. <laughs> um, no, mine, mine are also soundtracks for the blind, white light from the mouth of infinity, and boy, picking a third one is tough. I, it'd probably be the seer, uh, just because that one really, yeah, all Swans albums t- take you off guard. Um, 
or catch you off guard, I should say. But um, that one's really good. But um, I, I was lucky enough to see them live. And holy crap, that is... <laughs> seeing a band like Swans live isn't like a fun, raucous show. You just kind of stand there and just kind of watch in awe of what's happening. Because they are... It's, it's hard to describe. It's very... Uh, like uh, Pearl describes Swans as... Um, it feels like you're just taking all your anxiety and nervousness and fear and everything and just vomiting it out <laughs> like that that's what it's that's what their music is like it's very very intense um but then they have some songs that are the complete opposite they're like beautiful melodies and very soft sounding that's what soundtracks of the blind is but it has like this uneasiness like this really this really creepy underlying uh stuff underneath it and uh they do that so well uh michael Girard, the the head guy and the singer is a very is one of the most terrifying people i've ever seen in person hmm. uh when when i saw them live uh he, some photographer got like right in his face as he was singing and playing guitar and he was like get out like he was sh- sh- like swans is one of the loudest bands i've ever heard live okay and i could still hear him screaming at this guy get out get out of here back up wow and i was like holy shit do not ever piss this guy off he is scary have you ever have you ever actually been a i've seen a swan a real swan come at a man on a golf course once and they're scary (laughs) yes actually funny you bring that up my mom got attacked by a swan when we were in uh i forget if it was at lucerne switzerland in in Lake Lucerne, and there's a picture I took of my mom trying to feed this swan, and it's like snapping at her. <laughs> it's a it's one of my favorite pictures, so yeah. I'll have to share that with you. So that dude, he I... just channels his inner swan. That's what the band's all about. <laughs> Swans are assholes, aren't they? God, yeah, they're very uh, possessive, territorial. I don't know. I'm just making that up, but <laughs> they're uh, suddenly I'm an animal expert. But no, they seem like they seem very uppity. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. <laughs> I agree with you there. Well, it sounds like you you uh, you answered that one about the swans. I don't know anything about the swans, so that's that's definitely a you question. Uh, he says also for both of you, what are your thoughts on first person dungeon crawlers for the NES and Super NES? And he gives some examples: swords and serpents and such. Any favorites? Do the Kemco games for the NES, like Shadowgate, qualify as dungeon crawlers? Thanks for the company, as always. Your Swedish sober friend, Carl with a K. Uh, and I think I answered that a little bit there. Dungeon Magic, for sure, not that great. I honestly don't think any of them are that great. I mean, none of them are going to make the, the highlight reel for you know top 20, top 50 NES games. Wizardry is another one that tries to do it. It's just, uh, you know, the, 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 the industry or the platform, the technology wasn't ready for that kind of thing yet. Shadowgate, I wouldn't really consider... I wouldn't consider it a dungeon crawler in genre, maybe in theme. But it's, uh, I mean, it's, you know, if you want to crawl around a dungeon, I think you could play Shadowgate and have a good time. Not familiar with Shadowgate, but... Uh, I think it's a point-and-click look- kind of adventure game. Uh, but, yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it looks like Friday Night Arcade has a video on that game, actually. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. But um, I liked, um, I remember my brother renting Arcana for Super Nintendo way back in the day. Um, and that I thought that was really cool. The whole card motif... Um, I thought it was interesting. I just hated the fact that you had to press pause for the map. Um, and the map didn't always really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, it was hard to tell where you needed to go. I still liked it. I still enjoyed, uh, the look and feel and sound of the game and all that. But, um, 
that was really the only one I had a lot of fun with for Super Nintendo. NES, I would not... I'd rather not go near any of those yeah. games because they don't seem all that fun. I'll do it for you guys. It is... Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, thank I'll you. try. I'll yeah. see what I can do. Have you played uh, Swords and Serpents? I've dabbled a little bit. I don't... It's been a, a while, though. I didn't play it with uh, with a critical mind, but I didn't have much fun. I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, so the next email here is from Jono, and he says, Hey there, drunk friends. The recent release of the new Battletoads made me stop and think about how anthropomorphized animals with attitude... Oh, I see what he's saying here. He's talking about just animals with attitude. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it was basically its own thing post-Ninja Turtles. Uh, the question is, though, in a wa- the Warriors-style brawl, as in the movie, mm. who would come out on top? In the running, we have the Biker Mice from Mars. We have the Street Sharks. We have Extreme Dinosaurs. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, Battletoads and the Mighty Ducks. Oh, the Mighty Ducks. And he says, have a, <laughs> have a great weekend, Jono. And Jono has emailed several times. We thank you for your email, Jono. Um, that's a tough that's one. That's a t- uh, tough one. Uh, I think we could rule out the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, um, being what they are, humans and not actually ducks. Yeah, I agree with you there. And, and you know, they'd have to probably have to be on rollerblades unless they're fighting on ice. Yeah. That's true. That's a, I'm surprised he didn't put the Cowboys of Moo Mesa in here. but um. <laughs> Or uh, SWAT Cats. <laughs> yeah, or SWAT that's, Cats. That's yeah. another one. I'm not familiar um, with, with extreme dinosaurs. I'm looking them up. I mean, they do look like they look like a, a group of strong uh, Cretaceous-era fellas. I think <laughs> I think they'd do some damage. I, I, I would, you know, I think they'd do pretty good land or water. You got the sharks there. I, we've already considered well, the ducks out. And... Um, yeah. Well, the sharks, I mean, they're going to lose the speed advantage that they have unless they're fighting underwater, which mm-hmm. I don't think they are because yeah. we're talking about the warriors. None of the warriors took place underwater. So the sharks, uh, their true. big advantage, their speed advantage, out the window. So they they might have strength and they might have teeth, yeah. I, but so do the dinosaurs. I want to point out, though, they are street sharks. I mean, they're they're equipped for the streets. That may be, <laughs> that may be the case, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think I'm with you. I think I'm going extreme dinosaurs. Uh, biker mice from Mars. I mean, are they on their bikes? I mean, the biker mice from Mars to me are the coolest of these. I really enjoy the game. That's yeah. probably helping me out. But I don't know how they do in a fight now in a race. I'm picking them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, for sure. They, they. I, in fact, I think they would uh, see what they were up against, and they'd probably go in the other direction, <laughs> which would leave us battle toads, extreme dinos, and street sharks. I'm going extreme dinos. I'm with you there. I think that's just going to be a drunk friend pick today, as we're going extreme dinos. Yeah. Yep, that's our lock of the week. Lock of the week. Then we play our our choo 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 lock of the week, <laughs> and like a beer cracking open and pouring, and then we segue into something else. Anyway. So coming up, we have uh, a friend of the show he's been on before, and he's actually a part of some other podcast over on uh, polykill.com. Uh, he's written books. He's written five books, actually. He's going to talk about those, and he's written some video game essays. So if you, if you enjoy reading and you enjoy video games, you're going to like this guy because his YouTube channel and a lot of his own works are driven by video games and about video games. He's a funny guy, too, and he's very well-spoken. And it's Caleb J. Ross. You read it right there on the title when you clicked on the episode, so I don't have to not say it yet. So it's Caleb J. Ross, and uh, I think he was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to Caleb. He's very well-read, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I like talking about uh, video game books. I think, though, they are vastly underappreciated and underutilized. 
Um, and he delves into some stuff that's kind of interesting, which is like fictionalized video game stories, kind of like not quite like uh, Ready Player One or anything like that. But uh, he's got he, he's got a good imagination for for coming up with stories when it comes to stuff like that. That's right, and I, I forgot to mention this when we actually interviewed him, but you should go and check out CalebJRoss.com. You'll find all of his works there in addition to the videos that he makes. And so stick around for Caleb. All right, Caleb, thanks for coming back on the show. I know it was last minute. The uh, The guests that we originally had to come on who was more interesting couldn't make it, so we settled for you instead. <laughs> so thanks again for agreeing to, to come on. Sin- sincerely, I truly mean that. Uh, and you are a beer nerd, so i got to ask off mm-hmm. the top, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking a beer called Black is Beautiful. Uh, it's an imperial stout, 10% from uh, Fields and Ivy Brewery out of Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, so pretty close to where I live, about a 45-minute drive. I'd never had this one before, and it's quite tasty, I must say. But I also got plenty of water uh, because drinking a whole one of these during a time when I have to speak coherently probably isn't a great idea. So yeah. lots of water as well. Nah, you're fine. I've gotten away with it plenty of times. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it is a bitch to edit, but yeah. No, it's good. Um, and that was a, that was actually maybe the best and most full response we've ever gotten on what you drink in question. You came out. I, you, pre- I prepare for it every day of my life. I hope someone's going to ask <laughs> me because there's always a drink in my hand, right? Yeah, that is true. I mean, in most of your videos, you are what we call juggling oats. I don't think the beer ever touches your lips, but you usually slosh one around while you're talking about something. So, but yeah, no, that That's was a, a very thing. good response. Thank you. I'm actually drinking. Um, and I, it's it's from it's courtesy of another podcast that will be coming up uh, soon. But I switched over to wine tonight, and I'm drinking a uh, a Madeira, and it's very good. And I I don't know much about wine. I won't say much about it other than that it is brown and and called Madeira, and I like it. I think Madeira has some sort of entomological root in the color brown, so I'm guessing that's probably because uh, brown seems like an odd color for a wine, right? So it's got to be rel- related to that name. That's got to be special to it. I don't know. It's it's closer yeah. to maroon, but it's got, you know, it's it's not quite red. Let's say that. Bur- oh. Burgundy? Would you call it burgundy? Dirty burgundy. Dirty burgundy. Yeah, which my wife refuses to do. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a name of like a, a Soul Asylum reunion album or something. <laughs> <laughs> a reunion of souls is also what uh, his wife likes to call it. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about you, Alex? Are you partaking? I, I am. Uh, I've got that same uh, blood orange cider from Tractor Brewing out here in Albuquerque, and it's pretty good. I like it. I dig it. Works for me. Heck yeah, man! You've been can't go wrong with a cider. You've been going at those for a long time. Are you you buying stock in them, or are you just what are you doing? <laughs> they uh, no, it's just. I like the idea of supporting local, you know, stuff right, out right. here because so much stuff. I mean, since I've uh, moved out here in the past six years, um, geez, we've lost uh, one of our favorite uh, place called Copper Lounge. That place is gone. They used to have uh, Dollar Taco Night on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a, the best. You know, they're gone now. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, what was the other place? There was a barbecue place called The Cube. It was one of those places where you walk places where you walk in and it's the smell like it's just like oh i want some barbecue now give me all of your meats (laughs) and um that place is gone and there's at least a couple others i just can't think of off the top of my head but 
it seems to happen pretty often around here. So we're trying our best. You know, we want to. We really like tractor brewing. Brewing. So uh, we're trying to eschew, eschew, eschew. I know that's your gag, Travis. But <laughs> es- <laughs> es- eschew, eschew. How, what's what's the right way to say that? Uh, but uh, we're we're trying to. I, I'm trying to get away from stone a little bit. Trying to get away from the more popular. Mm stuff just to hopefully try and support some of the the local stuff so they don't freaking go out of business basically because it's <laughs> it's pretty rough yeah right on man that's how i rationalize my drinking habit too I'm yeah supporting all of the locals mm-hmm. yeah support the local economy there you go <laughs> all right nice uh so caleb you know the reason we're having you on today we wanted to talk books or at least i did i've been sort of on a video game book kick lately and when i think of video game books, you're you're naturally one of the first things I think of because you do a lot of reviews on your YouTube channel. Um, you've even written some books, and, and maybe we'll start there. And again, I can't remember how much of this we got into when you were on before, but could you give a brief, you know, backstory or a brief, you know, intro to your catalog as a writer? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I went to college to, with an English literature degree and a minor in creative writing. Um, and so the only thing you really do with that is you teach and then you also try to write. I did the latter and uh, ended up writing about over the course of about a decade and a half, five books, um, a couple of novels. Uh, this is in to- five books in total, which consist of a couple of novels, um, a few two stor- short story collections and then what's called a novella, which is essentially like a short novel. Um, it has to be pretentious, of course, everywhere. Everything in the literary world has to be something pretentious. So that's called a novella. Um, and then, uh, I kind of stopped after a while and those were all, uh, fit nonfiction or I'm sorry, those were all fiction. So novel made up stuff. Um, I, I kind of gave up on that for quite a while. Um, but I continued to read and, and just, uh, go nuts with reading and stuff. And, um, of course that led my love of video games allowed me to then start reading a lot about video games as well. So. Yeah, it seems like the video game hook, and I think we talked about this before, you, you sort of got bit by a, a video game bug right around the time, I guess, you were putting the, your pin down. Is that kind yeah, of the timeline? I, yeah. So I grew up with video games, um, as most of us probably did. Uh, so that's some of my earliest memories are about video games. I love video games, but and I played them all like pretty consistently uh, all the way up through college. And then about the decade or so after college is when I started really going to writing and sort of backed away from video games. Um, and then after that, I just, my life is cyclical in that weird way. And so I came back to video games. Uh, but of course I still had this, uh, I guess, writerly sort of, uh, notion about myself. So I got just kind of interested in, in books about video games, uh, through that. So I'm really curious, uh, this is kind of t- maybe a bit too general of a question, but, um, writing a book is really friggin' hard. Um, how, and, and once it reaches like a certain word count, like how do you keep it all together as one cohesive thing? Uh, I guess, cause one, I tried writing a book, uh, in another life, like almost 10 years ago now. And it went very, I, I just didn't like it after a while. Like I got <laughs> so tired of going back and rereading everything to make sure everything seemed consistent. And it, I got so tired of doing that, and I felt like I was rewriting everything constantly that I was just stuck. Do you ever have to deal with that, or, or what's what's it like for you when you sit down and you've got that cursor blinking at you? <laughs> yeah, in fact, for the first couple of books, um, I, I was really paralyzed by that. I, I call it like paralyzed by possibilities, where if you have a blank page, things are infinite, 
And then as soon as you get started writing, you get hyper self-aware about making sure that you're maintaining some sort of consistency from what you wrote yesterday to what you wrote now. And so if you if you're rereading everything you wrote before you start writing, by the time you get to half a book or so, you're essentially reading an entire, you know, 150 pages or something. Uh, that's going to take you a couple hours before you even start writing. Yeah. Um, so it really it, it worked for me because after college, I lived alone. Um, my girlfriend, now my wife, we didn't live together. So I had a lot of time. And that was kind of the magic point in my life when I could do that. Like, I don't see I, I don't think I could do that now with having a family and, and a full time job and everything, um, mm. which I did have back then. But it was a less rigorous type job. So that was part of it. I just had time. Um, the other thing I, I found myself doing maybe in, in sort of the later books uh, it took me a while to learn this when that was I tried to get through the first draft as much as possible, like as quickly as possible, uh, because uh, and then I would go back and edit. So uh, there's kind of two approaches. Uh, I have a friend of mine, Gordon Highland, who's also an author and a musician, and he he would write every sentence he wrote. He would mull over that sentence until it was perfect and then he would move on. So by the time he got to the end of the book, he didn't have a whole lot of editing to do. And that's yeah. mind blowing crazy to me. I don't understand yeah, it's how that way works. Too hard. Oh, yeah. I don't get it. So <laughs> you gotta so I, I would just vomit everything out as quickly as possible and then go back and edit. And one of the things that I found myself doing, which anyone who wants to, you know, write a book or something like that, it, it was advice that I, I wish I would have learned earlier, but what I would do is after every writing session, um, I would essentially print off like the last page or so. And I would just carry that around in my pocket. And whenever I was standing in line or whenever I was, you know, do when I should have been working and not working, I would just pull it out and read that and then just handwrite sort of the next section or whatever ideas for the next section. So that that evening when I went and sat down, I would basically transcribe what I'd handwritten. And that would be enough of a sort of uh, what's the NASCAR term when like you lead into the race. Um, that would be enough of that lead in to like get me motivated to continue writing like another two or three pages. And so eventually it was, you know, a page and a half, two pages every day that, amounts to a novel after long enough period of time that's an interesting uh, way to do it i wish i was that organized or that um disciplined in facet like other facets of my life like what you just described to me is is almost a romantic idea for me i'm like oh yeah like i would totally <laughs> carry around a piece of paper and, and read it when i had time and i would jot notes on it. like that be that sounds like an idea i would have and think that's great while in reality if i had the time i would just be watching youtube or be like i'll look at it later i'm not i don't feel like it right now or so (laughs) there's still an element of discipline that that goes into it i think so i would say that um you know honestly a lot of it was when i was in college and i was writing so that's when i started the first novel was in college um i worked at a grocery store and i worked in the produce section of a grocery store and so i'd have a clipboard and i was supposed to be taking inventory but instead i would just put that piece of paper on the clipboard and i'd walk around the floor looking at cucumbers and stuff and just writing the story there and so I, I didn't like my job enough that I was okay spending the time I was supposed to be working doing that instead. Now, if I had access to, you know, endless internet and a cell phone that was capable of streaming videos, it would absolutely be tougher. So I wouldn't get down on yourself at all. Like like I said, <laughs> I couldn't do it now. There's no way I could do it now. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So do you consider the um, sort of that, that novel writing part of your life behind you? It kind of seems like you've you've kind of come to terms with it's just not something you can do given the you know your current life situation yeah the novel thing specifically and i think that's more just i'm i'm not as interested in in novel writing um i've turned and recently sort of acquired an interest in maybe some sort of nonfiction, long form nonfiction. um i've written essays about video games and things like that 
Um, I've written sort of short personal stories about video games, and those are really fun for me to write. Um, so if I was ever going to do something long form again, it would probably be like a nonfiction type thing. And I've also over the years gotten more comfortable uh, telling my wife like that certain things, certain passions are important to me. Um, for a while, I was almost like um, I didn't want to talk about like the stuff. I didn't want to talk about writing books or even doing YouTube videos really to my wife because I couldn't justify it as a way to spend time away from her or away from the kids, you know, because it wasn't bringing in money. Um, but she was surprisingly just very like, okay with it. Um, and she sort of approved of it and was like that, you know, one of the things she said to me, I, when I told her I was, I was, you know, doing, I was, I was in the process of writing a book, which, which is no longer the case. Um, it, it sort of isn't, is gone the wayside, unfortunately. But when I was, was writing this book, I, I told her, and one of the greatest things she said, she was like, oh yeah, that sounds like you'd be really good at that. And it's not that she has never been supportive. It's that I've never given her the opportunity to show me that she was supportive because I've kept this to myself. <laughs> but then once I let her know, like, this is what I'm doing, uh, she's been much more supportive. So I think that's that's probably – I'd be more comfortable, I think, doing that now, if that makes sense. That's funny because uh, I had kind of an uh, the opposite experience with uh, my girlfriend, Pearl, where I had her read, like, the first half of what I was writing, which I, I, I knew I was struggling with it, and I knew I – in all likelihood had to like overhaul tons of things and she she reads and she's like well first of all <laughs> oh, no. the the main character is a jerk and he's really unlikable <laughs> and how are you supposed to empathize with this guy and understand what he's going through if he's not likable uh <laughs> going with the first person perspective is not a good idea with this you gotta you and she's absolutely right like you, you, it would be much, much better. Uh, it would read much better as, uh, you know, the the third per from the third person. But um, what you mentioned, uh, some of the stuff you've written about uh, the essays about uh, video games and other stuff around video games. What are some of those? Yeah. So um, the first one, I, 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 what I like to do is I kind of like to take memories of video games and use those as a launching off point for um, exploring the video game itself or maybe the themes within the video game. So a good example is the first one I wrote was called um, Shoot, Jump, Run, Growing Up. Uh, what was it called? Growing Up uh, with Metroid and Cocaine. I think it was something like that. And basically it was about how uh, my my father was addicted to cocaine. And so and he and my mom got divorced when I was five. And one of the only kind of real solid memories I have of him is when he gifted me my, my Nintendo when I was like seven years old uh, with the game Metroid. And so there's this weird pairing between Metroid and my father. And so I wrote about that. So it, it's kind of a personal story, which from someone who nobody's ever heard of, that's not something I would I would say that people would be terribly interested in, which is why I also then also dig into like the history of Metroid and how it was um, an important game and, and what it really did for video games. Um, and so I, I kind of want to I want to make it as broad as possible, but while using kind of what I know and my own memories and stuff. Um, and part of this is sort of selfishly motivated because I'm, I'm close to 40 now and I have memories that I probably will lose soon. So I want to figure out like how to get them on paper. Um, and then the one after that, which I think is probably a little bit more easy to explain that I wrote is called um, being a ninja is easy in a world full of idiots. Oh, I love this one. I, I read that in, in my bed one night. I just, I actually just Googled you or something and found it on Amazon and downloaded it and read it, you know, right before bed. And it is, it's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's about Tenchu stealth assassins and how as a kid I was super obsessed with ninjas. So when this game came out, I was like, I I will rock at this game. This will be the best game ever. And I sucked at it. And it was kind of a, a sense of like I was almost like uh, 
uh, ashamed. Uh, but then my PlayStation, which was the first thing I ever bought with my own money after I got a high school job, was stolen by my best friend from my house. And I sort of tried to use my ninja skills to sort of figure out who it was and to like bring clues to the police department in a small town of 3,500 people. And it was, it didn't work at all. And so, but then the actual like game development side of it is about how players don't really want uh, enemies with really smart, intelligent, artificial intelligence. You know, we always say, I want realism. I want my enemies to act real. But the truth is we don't want that because then the games would be impossible. And so you have purposefully built dumb enemies um, and so the idea of the title, you know, being a ninja is easy in a world full of idiots, Tenchi only works because the AI is dumb. And so I kind of play off those two ideas of me being this dumb, f- uh, fumbling <laughs> real life ninja trying to figure out this mystery. And then the actual game development side of, of and nin- uh, enemy ninjas being idiots. So that's that's kind of the stuff I like to do um, uh, when it comes to the video game related essays and stuff. It's very clever. And there are... Uh, I'm glad you didn't spoil all the laughs because there's quite a few really funny moments uh, in that. I'd, actually, I need to read the, the the other one about Metroid. I haven't done that yet, but I can definitely vouch for the the ninja essay. It's great. Oh, thank you, thank you. I have put a bit of thought into like what the lives of the flunkies in games like that are are, are actually like. Like, the, especially the guys in games like Final Fight. Like, you got that Simon's guy who's just like poured into those leather pants and it's like imagine like him in the morning like shaving his legs and greasing himself up just so he could put on his his clothes i thought that too i've always wondered if those enemies are aware that they're copies of all of the other enemies like do they not realize that like they're just clones you know and so do they think they're truly distinct separate personalities and it's like one day someone tells them it's like no you're a you're what's called a clone, and they're like, "What?" <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah. They don't even they don't even uh, react at all when they do see a clone of themselves. It's yeah, just yeah. Like, oh, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's, it's like, another one of that guy. No, no, no. But my shirt's green. His is red. <laughs> <laughs> like I love at the uh, I think it's the fourth level in Final Fight. No, it's in the arcade. It's the fifth level with all the motorcycles and all that stuff. <laughs> but um, and and there's like t- six or seven of every guy. Yeah, and it's like th- those guys don't stop and think like, well, wait a second, why? Why is there uh, everything in my entire life has led up to this? Yeah, and I find out that there's seven more of me, and we're <laughs> all trying to stop this guy, and we're all losing. Maybe because they their bodies just instantly decompose; they just flash and then immediately go away. <laughs> they have less less reverence for life than we do because they don't have to bury the bodies. So maybe life is really a fleeting thing for them. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> it's always uh, weird to me when they all have uh, you know names, and I think the Final Fight series and maybe Streets of Rage does that, where it's like there's two Eric's on screen, and they're both wearing the same <laughs> vest that shows their chest hair, and they you know they're wearing the same sunglasses, and it's like, do you guys not like if you just walked up and you saw your doppelganger, you would still fight me? You guys wouldn't talk about that first. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that's awesome. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so t- I want to sort of talk about your um, your YouTube channel a little bit because you do have a neat little series on there where you – I mean, a lot of it is book-driven, and I think you were a part of uh, – what is it called? BookTube? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you've also, you know, maybe more in recent years with the channel, you've done some some reviews of video game books so in terms of like book content, because you do you have a ton of different stuff on there, but what's what's some of the book content uh, people should know about on your on your channel and and what all do you do there? Yeah, so um, 
primary my book content now is is a hundred percent video games. But as you alluded to, my channel started off more of a book channel that was about just reading and reviewing all kinds of books and also talking about my own books and things like that. Um, and then after I did that for a couple of years, then it kind of transitioned to video games. Uh, but yeah, now it's any book on there is definitely a video game themed book. And I try to uh, focus on books that I feel are a bit underrepresented um, because there are usually when people think of a video game book, they think of a couple of things. They either think of something like um, uh, what's the Klein novel that came out and made, well, there was a movie made about it. Um, uh, the, uh, oh, uh, Ready Player One or what? Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Thank Ready Player One. So they either think of something like that, which is like a, a, a novel with like video game type themes, or they think of reference books. Uh, you can think of like Pat Contry's uh, book that he made that was essentially just a, a bound book of reviews, that kind of stuff, where it's uh, a compendium of a bunch of small pieces of information about books, but there's no narrative thread. There's no historical context, really. It's just here's a bunch of things put together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what most people think of when they think of uh, video game books. Um, so I stay away from those specifically, and I focus on books that are um, – you know, that tell sort of the history of video games in a narrative way, um, maybe the history of a very specific video game, um, or that try to take the idea of video games or what video games have done and explore them in ways that maybe a lot of people don't think about. So uh, maybe in sort of an academic way. Um, and and as to be expected, those videos don't get a ton of views, but um, it's, it's a way for me to sort of play my part and I think evangelizing for what I feel is a really important convergence of two mediums that seem at first like very diametrically opposed um you know books their history is 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 with royalty and, and smart people and intelligence the the upper class they were the only ones that could access books because they they were the only ones that could read and then now you have video games which were originally designed as essentially for the commoner you know they, they showed up in bars that's kind of where the arcades were first around and so um it, there's just something intrinsically interesting to me about that sort of Venn diagram overlap between something that's considered all highfalutin and something that is considered uh, lowfalutin, I guess. <laughs> and I and I like to see those things merge. And um, and I don't think enough people like I, I don't think enough people give them a chance. Um, I I don't think enough people like just I, I think people who really really care about video games uh, could love playing them. But if they're at all interested about like just history, I think books are the best way to do that. And that's not just for video games, but books are the best way to do that because they're able to focus on a very specific topic and get very detailed about that very specific topic without the distraction of like ads or the distraction <laughs> of uh, other URLs or websites to visit, you know, or social. It's just all kind of self-contained. And I really, really like that. That's a good point. Um, speaking of highfalutin, what are some of your uh, influences and some of your favorite books? Do you have any hidden gems in the oh book world? Oh my goodness! Um, to channel a certain other personality, <laughs> Metal Jesus books, of course. Of course, he's very good. <laughs> um, he he I, doesn't I, rock I read... anymore. Now he books. Yeah, he books I want to read his Bible. I, I hear it's good. That, 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 <laughs> the Metal Jesus books Bible. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's so many of them. So I guess, um, well, not so many, because then that'll scare listeners into thinking I'm going to talk about books, uh, very specific books no one's heard of for the next five minutes. But um, I will say, like, the one I like to recommend to a lot of people, uh, there's kind of two that I would recommend to a lot of people that I feel are probably hidden gems in the way that all of these books are probably hidden gems, because I don't know that a lot of people have read too many of them. Um, but one of them is a book called um, Getting Gamers. And it has a subtitle of The Psychology of Video Games and Their Impact on the People Who Play Them. Um, 
and it's by a guy named Jamie Madigan, who's a psych- who's a uh, psychologist, and he has a, p- a podcast or a, a podcast and a blog called The Psychology of Games. But he he's just really cool because he basically takes games and looks at them from a psychology standpoint and tries to explain and talk about like why people do what they do um, when they're designing video games, when they're playing video games. And the book is is just a, a long form version of that. Um, as an example, he'll get he'll get into like fanboyism, you know, like why do people fight over when there's a new console out? Why are some people PlayStation people and some people are Xbox people and they don't seem to be able to play nice together and they're always fighting and mine's better yeah. than yours? The it's a tri- very the tribalism of it. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and that's a very common psychological concept, this idea of fanboy or fangirlism. Um, but a lot of people maybe have heard that term and just used it loosely, but he gets into the psychology of like what it means. And he's a very, very approachable writer, which I like. Like he doesn't get into this academic jargon or anything like that. He's just a very. Uh, very cool guy. What he writes is very cool. So if anyone is interested in that book, but is maybe intimidated just by, maybe you just don't read very much, um, check out his podcast, The Psychology of Games, and, and the, his podcasts are very much like the writing in his book. So I would say that from like an academic-y uh, pos- uh, angle is probably a really, really good one to check out. Um, and then I would say the other one uh, that maybe people should read that that came out a couple years ago um, is called The Tetris Effect. And its subtitle is The Game That Hypnotized the World. And this is my other kind of favorite video game book. So I I really like the psychology ones and the academic ones. This is my other favorite one where it tells, like, a very in-depth history of a specific game. Uh, One of the ones people have heard about is Doom, Masters of Doom by David Kirshner. Um, That's a very common one that I think a lot of people have heard of. But this one is, is similar, except it's just about Tetris. And, man, I didn't know anything about Tetris uh, I didn't know nearly as much as I, as I thought I knew about Tetris this book reads like a spy novel like it's it's a non-fiction so it's a true story but it's crazy how entrenched that game was in you know the the, the 80s like uh, end of the Cold War kind of era and yes. Soviet Union and, and everything I mean it's just way deeper than I thought it was and it's such a fascinating read so those would probably be the two that I would recommend that I would also probably consider hidden gemish very cool. Yeah, I've read the, that um, I think it was actually Seth Rogen and Adam Goldberg who are coincidentally the two folks that did the forward for the Console Wars book yeah, that yeah. came out a few years ago. They were trying to make that into a movie. or I forget if it was them or I'm getting mixed up. I think they're trying to make Console Wars into a movie. Mm-hmm. But then there's, there, there's another fellow that's trying to make that tetris story because it's crazy mm-hmm. it really is crazy uh the the background behind it and how the creator kind of got screwed yeah um, big time and and got ate up in just bureaucracy and nonsense and got left behind yeah. um but it's a happy story because he does end up getting yeah. out and i think he lives in the states now and he owns the tetris company so it's like he yeah. he finally got his his uh deserved ending yeah i don't know how to say that yeah and he's, uh, yeah, and there's plenty of other Tetris games now, so it was able to grow as a, a franchise, so to speak. But yeah, yeah, that's a crazy story. Yeah, but Console Wars is a great one. You mentioned that one, too. That one's a phenomenal book as well, so. It's interesting. The, yeah. the author took a very odd approach where he novelized a true story from the perspective of, uh, I forget his name, the Sega president. Of yeah. Amer- Sega it- of America president. <laughs> Yeah, like Tom Blazinski or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was going to say I actually just read that book, and that was part of the reason why I, why I thought like 
I kind of want to talk video game books with Caleb, and we might as well record it since I can't talk to Caleb unless it's recorded. <laughs> so, you know, let's have him on to talk about books. But actually, you know, I, I assume, Caleb, you probably read like a, a hardback physical edition, but I was really impressed with um, – I, I don't get a lot of time to read uh, books like that, or at least I, I think I don't. I probably could make the time. But listening to them um, on Audible has, has sort of been my choice way to, to insert them into my head while playing games. And the performance for Console Wars, and I should look up actually who read it on the uh, the Audible version, it was maybe the best Audible, and I listen to Audible books constantly, so it's not like, this was my first Audible book, guys, and it's crazy, <laughs> they read the words, like, it was a full <laughs> acted out thing, this one guy did, you know, all the voices, and nailed all of the characters, and it, it wasn't over the top, it was it was very, like, it was perfect. I was so impressed by that. So it was kind of like, you know, I was impressed by two things, really. The, the story itself and then just hearing it played out in my in my ears was um, really amazing. I, I definitely recommend Console Wars if you're if you're interested in video game books at all, but specifically if you like audiobooks. It's fantastic. One thing from that book I remember, I did uh, flip through it and I came across something very fascinating i remember when i anytime i buy a book i have it i I just haven't read it yet um but anytime i buy a book i always like turn to like page 50 or whatever and read like a few pages just just because um there was something about sonic's original design Mm. where they they were supposed to give him a a girlfriend named madonna or something Mm -hmm. like that (laughs) and wearing like a leather jacket and have like spiked teeth (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it was and i forget who proposed that i forget if it was uh Sega of Japan or Sega of America, but they, I think it was Sega of Japan because Sega of America was like, this is dumb. This yeah. guy, <laughs> this guy, this guy looks like, you know, this is, this is just way too over the top. And when they came back with the other, you know, what we now know as the Sonic design, they just, Sega of Japan was like, this is dumb. Like, yeah. this is, this will never work. And I thought that was fascinating. It's like, really cool because that actually, that's like one of the rifts. A lot of, one of the things I learned from this book is just how, um, antagonistic Sega of Japan and Sega of America were with each yeah. other. Yeah. Like yeah. they did not get along at all. So that was almost like a micro war. It's like Sega was fighting a battle on multiple fronts mm-hmm. um, against Nintendo and against themselves. But yeah, it was Japan that came up with that crazy idea, and, <laughs> and that was something that kind of severed that relationship even more. Was was yeah. that? Um, I would say like the other really cool detail that I just kind of remember from that book was, um, you know, the old uh, the guy who would scream Sega at like in oh, every yeah. commercial that kind of like. They called him in. It was some guy they hired to do that. Uh, and I don't know if he worked there or if he was like an, an actor they hired or whatever. But they called him in. They said, hey, we need this recorded like today. There was some reason they had to have this recording. They had to have this thing done today. And he's like, I'm sick, guys. I, I can't talk. And they're like, I don't care. Come in. Come in. And basically the guy had him record it when he was sick, but then kept telling him to re-record it and re-record it and re-record it until finally the guy was just angry and frustrated. And he would yell out Sega just to be done with it. And that was the one they ended up using. So it's almost like the weird potato chip thing where the guy, like the origin of the potato chip, where the a, a, a customer orders uh, thin cut potatoes and the chef brings them out. And the guy keeps saying, I want thinner, I want thinner, I want thinner. And then finally the chef was like, fine, I'll just give you so thin potato chips you can't even eat them. Take that. And that was exactly like what the guy wanted was these these fried potato chips. So it kind of reminded me of that kind of thing where it's like hmm. the guy was just like, oh, yeah, you're going to make me keep doing it? Well, I'm going to make it terrible. Blah. And that's what they used. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also known as the Stanley Kubrick uh, methodology. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, I'm going to drive Shelley Duvall so insane <laughs> that she actually is insane in this movie. 
and it turns out to be a good movie, so everyone forgave him. That's right. Forced method <laughs> acting is the way to go. Uh, and, yeah, I, I enjoyed that part about that, too, especially the part where I can't remember. By the way, I said Tom Blazinski earlier, and I basically mixed Cliff Blazinski with Tom Kalinski. It's Tom Kalinski was the name. <laughs> Um, but we both said, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, yeah, you're yeah, right. yeah, yeah, so. shut up. Um, but no, it's it's Tom Kalinske. <laughs> it sounded right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, it, it was funny to me later on in the book, the guy was like walking around and he heard kids yelling Sega on the playground. And that's how he knew that um, he's like, wow, that was what a success when kids are just screaming Sega at one another from like two feet away. So that's always fun. <laughs> I, I'm reading another one or I'm listening to another one. It's just called Super Mario and it's by Jeff Ryan and it, it, touches on a lot of you know the exact same stuff you get from console wars but it's more focused on i guess yeah. mario as a as the centerpiece and sort of nintendo's branding and it's not very forgiving with nintendo being written from that perspective um it basically calls it like it sees it but the problem that i have with the book and, and in listening to it it's narrated by a guy named ray porter i swear when he says famicom he ends it with the letter n he's saying famicon and it drives me insane. And I, I usually listen to everything on like 1.2, just speed it up a little bit. And so I was like, maybe it's the speed up. Maybe if you say an N so fast, it just sounds like an M. So I slowed it down and listened. And I was like, no, I still think it. So now I, I'd be interested if anyone else out there has, has heard that audiobook. Are you hearing Famicom or Famicon come out of that? Because it's driving me insane. I almost can't finish it because I'm, I'm so anal about it. that I'm like, come on, guy. Yeah, you sounds like a, a convention for the, the family. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, it stands for family computer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's me. <laughs> yeah, it's you. Um, I will say, yeah, Super Mario is a really great book because it feels like to me like the the other half of Console Wars. Yes, because Console Wars ultimately was sort of a Sega underdog story, like in a weird. I mean. In a lot of ways, it was like it was supposed to be a fair and balanced sort of look at the two consoles battling each other out. But there was a lot more like writing, uh, at least toward the latter half of the book. There was a lot more on the, uh, the Sega. Sure. There was a lot more writing on Sega success than the Nintendo's. And so, yeah, that Nintendo one almost seems like the Nintendo portion of that. So, yeah, they're really worth reading together. Yeah. And I think um, Console Wars, I want to say, was, was that your first uh, video game book review on your channel? I think so, yeah. I I believe so. Yeah, and you have one. I just wanted to mention the ones that you've mentioned here. You have one for Tetris Effect, and mm-hmm. um, did you have one for the um, the first one you mentioned? The oh, uh, I I have two videos that do dig into two of the chapters from Getting Gamers, right? But okay, they're not named with Getting Gamers is all in them, so it's going to be very hard to find. Them. Good. That's that's way you want to do your YouTube channel. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> very well done. I'm not a smart guy. I've never claimed to be. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think those are. That's. I mean, that's such a good idea for a, a, a channel series, especially in the gaming space. Um, because I'm with you. I think. I think video game books are they're undervalued in a lot of ways. In that, you know. People probably do look at Ready Player One, or maybe they just go ahead and go full fiction and grab Ender's Game and pretend that that counts. Or maybe <laughs> you're right. I mean, I just ordered Pat Contry's NES book. He had a Labor Day sale. So I just got that one, and I, I like those books too. I like the compendiums. But there's something about these, you know, like the boss fight uh, books and some mm-hmm. of those that really dig into specific stories that just aren't popular that are still interesting. I think that that's your channel does a really good job of highlighting those and. You know, when it comes to books and YouTube, there's to me, you know, maybe I'm just I haven't ventured out into BookTube, 
but there's not a lot of crossover there. I don't see a whole lot of book stuff. And so you do a really good job of marrying, uh, you know, obviously the written word to, to and putting it in a video form. I think it's well, really well done. Oh, thank you. That's a reputation I, I appreciate, and I'm, I'm glad you think of me that way. It's the only good words I have to say about you, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to ask, uh, the most recent video game book that I read is called Replay by Tristan Donovan. If uh, either of you fellows have read that, because I thought that was uh, tremendously well done um, and incredibly well researched. It's all, um, it's completely nonfiction, uh, and I, I love stuff like this. But what I really like about it is, yeah, it's easy to go into, you know, Nintendo versus Sega or like the big Atari crash of in the early 80s and all that sort of stuff and harp on that stuff. But this guy went out of his way to go way into... Uh, video game culture out in Europe, uh, starting with like how certain PC systems were developed, like the Amiga, the Atari ST, uh, Commodore 64, all this stuff. And each country kind of had their own, put their own flavor on the kind of games that they would make. Like, for example, the UK was making a lot, you know, as you probably expect, they made a lot of like games uh, in the vein of, you know, Monty Python style crude humor uh stuff like that just like goofy point and click adventure like real just like you know simple stuff whereas in france they took the medium very seriously as like an art form and they're creating like these text adventure games this is back in like the early 80s mid 80s and um they're they're cranking out these like serious adult stories you know with like rape and you know like betrayal and family crisis and you know all this crazy stuff happening so I thought that was fascinating to read about because I know I had a complete blind spot for all of that, so I was learning tons of new stuff. Hmm. I'll put that up at the top of my list. I have not read it. It's been on my wish list for a long time, so I'll probably bump that up. I actually got, um, I forget what, I think it was uh, one of the videos I did called uh, Games in, Good Games in Unexpected Places, and I ended the video with one game I found that was made in, uh, uh, was it France? I think it was France. Um, and it was called uh, Captain Blood, hmm. and it is one of the most like intensely weird games I've ever seen. Where the the developer of the game created his own language, his own alphabet, and all this sort of stuff. And this it's the story is this guy has to like kind of ingratiate himself with this uh, alien race in order to find these five objects. And in order to do that, he's got to convincingly speak this language to them. And it's like, what in the hell oh, is this game? Jeez. It's crazy. Yeah, it's I think... and it, he goes all in with this. Like he is, it's fully realized. And it's like I never would have known about this if I didn't read that book. And it looks like that was on uh, the Commodore sixty four and the, the the ZX Spectrum, which I, I've, I've I've the ZX Spectrum is something that I really want to learn a lot about. It was it was only I think released in Britain, um, and hence the Z part of mm-hmm. the ZX Spectrum. Yeah. Um, and so, but that was like one of those homebrew kind of machines like the Commodore where there weren't any really, th- there were companies making games for them, but it was also very easy just to make your own game. And a lot of weird stuff came out of that. Yeah. And yeah. so I wonder if that was kind of a product of that. Um, but yeah, that looks cool. Probably, yeah, I would guess. Yeah, I need to I need to read that as well. I went ahead and bumped that up on my wish list. I'll, I'll probably... Uh, I don't know if it doesn't have an audiobook version. I'll probably read it when I'm old and gray, but um, <laughs> I'll just I call you up every night and read it to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, be but, a lot of heavy breathing. 
Oh, well, that's my favorite part of podcasting with you, which is what I want to segue into. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing up your heavy breathing. No problem. <laughs> you had mentioned earlier you were talking about you know the different levels of mediums. You considered books highfalutin. Well, you don't you don't personally consider it that way, but it is no, no. widely acknowledged that books are are the higher medium and video games are the lesser medium, which is why we. Well, you, I say we. I cleverly came up with the name. Um, Very clever. Tales of the Lesser Medium, which is you know a podcast where Caleb and I get together uh, once every couple months, it seems at this rate, and we go through the narrative of a video game. We started out, our first series was on Resident Evil, and we did the first four games in that series. You know, Resident Evil, you know, from the PlayStation. Resident Evil, Resident Evil 2, uh, number 3, Nemesis, and not 4. No, we jumped to Resident Evil 0 because we went the way that they were released. And that does sort of encapsulate the nice, uh, tight story from uh, Raccoon City that happens. And then 4, 5, 6, 7 gradually go off the rails. We'll get to those one day. But that's where we started was on those original uh, Resident Evil episodes. And uh, they've been pretty well received. It's not, it's not like a huge listenership. And I think it really requires people to have a very specific set of circumstances to want to, like you want to, I think people want to have already played through the games before they listen. They don't want to be spoiled by us just joking around everything. Um, and, you know, have an interest in the game and then also just want to be entertained in that way because what we're doing is we're retelling the story as best we can. We're putting it together through playthroughs and, and uh, fan-made sites where they di- uh, splice up the narrative and talk about it. And we're trying to compile all of that into uh, a written form and then also splicing in our own humor uh, through in it or throughout it, so that it's at least entertaining for us to digest. And and I've enjoyed it. I think it's been a pretty fun process. It's a lot more work intensive than I ever expected. Uh, but Caleb, what's your what's your take on this project that we've that we've undertaken? It's one of the most fun things uh, that I look forward to. Um, it really is, and, and it is a lot of work. But you also sort of undersold it by saying it was only you know once every couple of months. And while that's true. Every couple of months, there's four episodes, at least as it's been so far, released all at once. So it's kind of like the Netflix model where it releases an entire season right. kind of all at once. So you get, you know, four to eight hours uh, of content every every couple of months. Um, and and you're, you're, it, it t- does take a lot of time. But, yeah, I really enjoy it because I think there's uh, – Travis and I both, I think, share a sense of humor – uh, and we both like these these old video games, and we and we both recognize how absurd these old video games are, and we both love just making funny voices and doing skits, uh, s- sort of semi improv skits, uh, just making fun of the various situations that happen. So it's really fun for me, um, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah, the I will say, you know, we talked about like it coming out every couple months, and I, I don't think we were. We were ready for the amount of work, or at least I was. And I know I drug you into it. I was like, "Hey, I need I need somebody to read me a story while I make fart jokes every you know every thirty <laughs> seconds. I need to insert something that's funny." I, I, like even on this podcast, I can't go like a few minutes without somebody chuckling. And I was like, "I just you know, do you mind? I know you're a literary guy. This has got this is I kind of tricked you into it. I'm like, it's like a book. We're going to read it. You know, I tried to uh, trick you as much as possible, <laughs> but." I, I think we're getting better at making it a little more efficient. We're we're trying to tackle writing a little bit differently, and it's it's uh, a thing that I try to fit in on my on my lunch breaks. I'm like, all right, I want to get through a couple more chapters of this game, because I'm watching walkthroughs and, and trying to put in all the absurdity. But I'm learning so much about these games that I didn't know, and I think that's really the rewarding thing about it is, you know, while these narratives are really dumb and contrived, 
some of they're, they're clever sometimes when you don't expect them to be, and they're dumb sometimes when they don't need to be. And and that's been entertaining in and of itself is just like a what were they thinking and why this <laughs> MacGuffin here and why mm-hmm. five hours like were, did they just put this story element in so she so they could show that they've animated a way for her to use monkey bars because that seems ridiculous. <laughs> it is true when we're when we're so like with Resident Evil. Um, I, I look at things from a, also from a developer standpoint. So I'm kind of an armchair game developer. I've made a couple of really tiny games just for myself. They're not for sale or anything like that. But um, So I look at it from the perspective of there's a reason they're forcing this particular situation. Is it because they have to worry about uh, streaming in data to get rid of data? Is it because they have to worry about making sure that they're pacing the, uh, the variety of the mechanics every so often? So like the monkey bar example, like is it because at this point a player who spends 30 minutes in this particular section is going to start getting bored and they just have to have something different to do in order to push themselves forward um is it just the cultural uh uh expectations you know video games have guns so therefore you know this character needs a gun and therefore that you know that that's what it is and so i'm I'm thinking of it from that perspective too and then uh also from the narrative perspective although i think a lot of the older games that we that we tackle um are limited not just in the fact that they're 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 smaller games and they can't really handle as much narrative information, but at that time games for the most part still weren't expected to be narratively rich like they are now, and so you could get away with a lot of weird nonsense, which I think you still can today. I, I, that's one of the things I love about video games. It's a it's a rare medium where I think movies are probably the same kind of ways. Like it's a medium where they're super opposing ends of the spectrum, and and people are willing to accept both. Like you could love. Um, you could love uh, fancy movie A. I'm trying to think of some highfalutin movie. Um, I can't even think of one. Um, but Citizen Kane. I was going to say Carpet Citizen Blanca. Kane. There yeah. you go. Citizen Kane. You could love Citizen Kane, and you could love uh, The Room. You know, like, it's okay to do that. <laughs> like, no one's going to make fun and of And I do love The Room. <laughs> See, there you go. And I think it's the same with video games, too. So, like, but at the time, there weren't really any serious stories in video games, at least not ones that had to... Um, broadcast loudly that we are a serious story game and so that's what you're getting into now you can have serious stories but not have to say be careful now this is a serious story <laughs> yeah uh, which i like i like yeah yeah and and one last thing on that before we we transition into some listener questions um i will i will say i noticed in the resident evil series that no matter what they try to eliminate you ever being around anyone else because they didn't they didn't want to program in AI for someone to follow you around. So anytime you come in contact with somebody in a cutscene, and they're like, "All right, we need to stick together," and then immediately they find a reason to leave you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and and those are the, some of the story elements that we point out. And that I don't you don't notice when you're playing it. You're just like, "Well, I guess he's gone again." But when you when you're forced to think of it as a story, it becomes hilarious and thinking like, "Where do these people keep going? They're in a mansion. Why don't they stick together?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or just hole up in the mansion, live there forever. It sounds like it's a pretty nice house, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so before we go into listener questions, just uh, if, if you're not aware, Caleb and I do a podcast called Tales of the Lesser Medium, and we're, we have another uh, season of episodes coming out here probably toward the end of the month, maybe early next month, on our next set of games, which I guess we'll, we'll keep what we're working on secret, and you can be surprised when it comes out. But we do have four... Uh, the first four Resident Evils out there, and I think they're pretty good time. So it would be great if you if you gave it a listen, maybe let us know what you thought. Uh, but let's jump into be some. A, be, what's that? Be honest though, it's going to be Griffey Baseball, right? Griffey Baseball is next. Uh, the fictional tale of of Griffey 
and how he was able to overcome uh, Nintendo <laughs> buying the Mariners, which I learned through Console Wars, was a big deal. No, that's right. A, that's right. Yeah. It's a really fantastic idea for a podcast, um, treating these stories as if they, you know, actually happened, mm-hmm. and really diving into it and 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 picking apart some of the absurdities because there are plenty of them. Um, so yeah, anybody that's not familiar with that podcast, please go check it out because it is laugh out loud funny. Awesome. Thanks for saying so. Um, all right. So we have some listener questions. The first one here was, is Brad from Brooklyn, which I assume is how he says his own name. I'm not trying to be, (laughs) it's Brad from Brooklyn. Um, he says, okay, he gives us a big hypothetical here. He says, you are newly anointed monarch of video games for your first Royal decree. What one design rule would you require every video game, past and present, to follow? For example, he says it could be anything from allowing gamepad remapping to visual elements to requirements on tutorials, etc. And then after this, he has a bonus question, but we'll go through this one first. What is one game design rule you would require every video game, past and present, to follow? I've been playing a little bit of N64 uh, the past uh couple uh, weeks i guess and man if i could just replicate that gray fog off in the distance that's in every single n64 game if i could put that in every game ever made boy that would be wonderful that's i think that's my pick no really um i really thinking of just super nintendo it really drives me nuts when game platformers action platformers don't follow the obvious uh B to jump, Y mm-hmm. to attack. And some games insist on doing A to attack like the NES did. And it's like, no, the controller is shaped a certain way for this to be... The, like the, the the game that makes me the most mad is uh, Ninja Gaiden Trilogy. It's like, oh, it needs to be like the original B and A. It's like, no, don't do that. And there's no way to change it either. Oh, that's, that's the worst, yeah. Yeah, so you're stuck with that, and it's kind of annoying, but... I guess that would be my pick, other than the gray fog. Yeah, you got to have gray fog. I mean, what what made Silent Hill special? All the fog, of course. <laughs> uh, I think mine. I don't know if this. I don't even know if this um, qualifies as a design rule, but it's something that I thought about the other day. So I'm going to pretend like it will count. And I, I, and I'm not talking about the way you can do it to cheat a video game, but if you could include like a replay function like you can in sports games where you just watch something awesome again. Because I, I pull off cool moves in video games all the time, oh. especially like in old video games. And I'm like, oh, that was awesome, and I'll never see it again. Like maybe I didn't record the footage. Not everybody's out there like like Alex and I just recording everything we play for the posterity of perhaps turning it into a YouTube thing. Uh, I do cool things in video games all the time I'm not recording, and I'm like, man, it'd be cool to catch a replay of that because instead I'm having to describe it to my friends. Like, so he like jumped up, then I pressed like stab. <laughs> so like I pressed stab, right? I had like no hearts left. I had like half a heart, but like I didn't have any like health with me. It'd be cool to just replay that and be like, dude, check out this cool thing I did. And yeah. Um, that's a cool thing. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah, not a design um, rule, but a cool a cool feature that could have been could be cool. What what you what you describe sounds like a guy like repeating like a bad beat story in poker. <laughs> it's like, if there, is there ever a bad beat story like with gambling or with poker that's like, oh man, oh let me guess, the the last card turned over and <laughs> yeah, and it was it wasn't the card you wanted to see. Is that how this ends? Um, or, or another guy I think of is uh, the guy who always insists on like 
trying to describe a song to you like oh yeah no man it, it goes and i'm just like that does not help me at all yeah uh no and then he, I, I had a friend like this in high school that no no it, seriously listen and i'm like i don't i i give up i don't know okay you can do that all day and i'm still not gonna get it yeah, it's like people describing a dream to you it's like that it's never yeah. going to be as cool as you saw it in your brain at 4 a.m dude yeah yeah caleb what's your design rule to change the world oh wow um so i'm i'm of the opinion uh so i'll start off by saying this i'm of the opinion that uh, i think developers should have the freedom to kind of do whatever they want as long as they do it well and with intent so like if there's a reason why a developer puts fog in a game or if the developer puts fog in a game like silent hill is a good example so silent hill the the fog was in the game obviously to hide the draw distance because the playstation couldn't really draw project that much draw distance there just wasn't enough uh computing power but they made it work because Silent Hill takes place in a dreary town and everything, so they, they compensated for it. So I'm like, good, that's great. Use that. Um, but not every developer can be trusted to be that smart. A lot of developers have to cut corners because of costs or whatever, and they, so they start doing dumb things. So with that caveat in mind that generally I'm like, I want developers to be able to do what they want, so I don't want to enforce anything strictly. I will say the one thing that I is sort of a, 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 a sort of a cheat, I guess, would be I would love if all developers had like many 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 more customizable options at the beginning like to the degree of like the last of us 2 came out and it got heralded for its uh accessibility options and it's it's just mind-blowing how many accessibility options there are you can play that entire game with your eyes closed like because they have so many accessibility options to help you through it and let you do that so for people who can't use the games i would like that applied but to everything like i want subtitles to always be able to be increased in size i want you always to have Mm. the option to skip screens i want you always to have the option to Invert the camera axis if you want to. Just There should be a template, a boilerplate template that layers on top of every single PlayStation or Xbox game that PlayStation or Xbox as the platform holders insist upon and say you have to have all of these 50 things customizable, right? So similar to how PC has probably been doing. I'm not a PC gamer, but from what I hear, PC has been doing forever. Like, I wish that would be the thing. And so that's kind of a cop-out answer because I'm saying, like, a lot of things at once, but that's that's what I'm gonna do. I'm that's I'm the monarch. I get to interpret it how I want. Fair enough. I don't think it's a bad answer. Accessibility is always a good thing. I think. Uh, here is Brad from Brooklyn. Here's his bonus question. He says you need to arrange a royal video game marriage for your child. You have received offers from all the great video game noble families: Mushroom Kingdom from Mario, the Kingdom. Or the family of the king of all cosmos from Katamari, Zelda and Ganon's families in Hyrule, and so on. Whose do you accept? So is this who? Is this where we are going to their wedding, or they are coming to our kids' wedding? I think we we are arranging. We need to arrange a royal video game marriage, and so we're we're picking the family. I think that we're we're um, we're allowing to marry into our family. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. A regular old Nothing Montague in the old in the other family situation. The Braithwaite, yeah, the Hatfields and McCoys. Is that better? Yeah, that one. I know that one. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I think I'd go God 
from ActRaiser. Oh. I, mean, I thought you were going to say from Christianity. Yeah, I was like, well, <laughs> he is a good pick. He's been strong this, this so far. Well, then I'd be God. I, I'm guessing then I would be what? God's son-in-law or something like that? Is that how this works? God, like, what? Sure. I'll need to read yeah, Metal I, Jesus' I so. book again. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I want to come at Metal Jesus. <laughs> and I, I want to be drunk, drunk Jesus. Because I'd be God's son-in-law. That's, so that's, oh, that'd be fun. Uh, I don't know, man. I would have to, I would probably say, uh, what he says, Zelda and Ganon's families in Hyrule. I mean, I don't really know how to answer this, but I think, uh, you know, someone in the, in the, uh, family line of Link would be good because they don't talk a whole lot and they seem very, either wear cool hats, I guess. I'm into that. I think that would be a cool thing. (laughs) You know, cool hats. Just shut up and wear a cool hat. Would you? (laughs) Oh, that's true. Yeah, you wouldn't talk ever again. I love it. <laughs> I I think um so the king of all cosmos is a really good one. Uh only because you know that it would just be bonkers all the time. Like there'd never be a calm time. It would be the most fun except for the fact that you know he would probably murder you without a second thought since he's putting his son through the task of having to create an entirely new solar system by literally rolling people up into balls and killing them, assumedly. And his face Um, looks kind of like a pelvis, which probably isn't good for the genetics going forward, but... Very Mm. strong ball chin, though. (laughs) You know, like, that's that's nice. Um, Big big package (laughs) that's true and and he flaunts it you know he flaunts it and i think that's how marriage into a family works right like if if i'm gonna get that big package if if that (laughs) um but yeah so that would be a really good one but i I feel like since he led with that that's why i'm primed to say that so um i would probably say like i would love uh i don't know if there's an entire family built around it but like the shantae games like my my kids and i love playing the shantae games every time there's an well there's only been like one new one since they were born essentially, but um, the the new Shant or the Shantae games we love. Now I don't I I think there's a lineage in there somewhere, but I think I just like the sort of Arabian genie. Uh, I would just love to be part of that party, and so I'll, I'll pick that. Even though again, it might be a cheat answer. Fair enough. It works for me. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you're the monarch. I don't think you can cheat. Once again, that's true. So they should they should be asking to join my family. That's right. Like, why am I begging to join theirs? Hey, that's not right. That's a good I'm point. the monarch. <laughs> Given what Square Enix did with Final Fan- uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake and the estimated five and six years it will take to completely release, <laughs> if they ever actually do, what are your thoughts on Chrono Trigger or Chrono Cross getting a similar remake? I feel like we got to defer to you on this one, big yeah, guy. Yeah, i lean back on this you're one. You're the Chrono think... Trigger guy. I think Chrono Trigger's fine. I don't think it needs to be remade. It's kind of like Super Metroid. Like, I would never remake Super Metroid. It doesn't need to be remade. What I want to see is a Chrono Trigger, like, sequel. Like, mm. a real sequel, not Chrono Cross, which flimsily ties in the uh, the stuff at the end of the game, and it just did not do anything for me at all. But I want to see, like, Magus, a crazy Magus with, like, a big homeless guy beard. He's, like, up on a mountaintop, like, desperately trying to find uh his sister shala because she's kind of uh lost at the end of the game um i want to see that and then he accidentally opens a, a rift to like an entire planet of lavos or something like that where they they come back for revenge against lavos hell there's like a mother you know like in aliens there's the mother alien there should be a mother lavos i think you have a book idea here 
Yeah, I don't. I don't want to see a remake for Chrono Trigger because I think it's one of the best games ever made. So I, it doesn't need to be remade, in my opinion. Whereas Final Fantasy VII had those terrible <laughs> graphics <laughs> with the polygony, pointy nose, pointy hair. Like it just looked. Ba- it just looks bad. And then you've got those like set pieces where. You're running around and your character is like two pixels tall. Mm, yeah. And you don't know which way you're like running. You, or you might be stuck on a yeah, wall, but you, you can't tell. You're like, I think I'm still going west. Oh, no, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a matte painting, basically. Yeah. It's kind of, re- I, that's, that kind of stuff just hasn't aged well. It was, that game was ripe for, to be remade because uh, certain stuff didn't age well. But I don't think Chrono Trigger's aged poorly at all. And I don't think it needs to be remade. That's just my opinion. Fair, I mean, you you have the definitive opinion on Chrono Trigger, so I'll defer to you on that. I one. do not. <laughs> <laughs> definitive. No, th- see, the, the key is to talk in declarative sentences. Like if you say, if you cut out all the qualifiers, <laughs> eliminate words like "might" or "I think," then uh, all those nuances and just like say things, then they will become fact. There you go, and that's that's, that's what right. I've learned from listening to C- Colin Cowherd on the radio. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's good. I think that's a, that's a good enough answer. I, I enjoyed Chrono Trigger, but I, I don't know the storyline like you do. So I think you would have the, the definitive response there. I'm actually okay with remaking anything. I don't care. Uh, I don't think it hurts the old stuff. I still, it's not going to take my Chrono Trigger cartridge off my shelf. So, you know, whatever. That's mm. exactly the way I look at it too, is, is if, uh, I might not like the, the remake, but if it's great, fantastic, I can buy it. If it's not, I can leave it and still return to the old cartridges. The only thing it could possibly do is maybe put, if it's a bad enough, like Secret of Mana, that remake was was terrible. Um, if it puts a stink on the series and then therefore there's no yeah. legitimate company that ever wants to revisit it again, that could <laughs> be a problem. Um, but if you know if it's a if it's a one off sort of remake, um, yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm my my thing is is that those resources could be put towards a remake that maybe didn't come out in the U.S. or oh, yeah, never yeah. left Japan or something like that. Like there's a bunch of stuff like uh, Live Alive, um, Treasure of the Rudras, Terra Nigma. I'm just trying to think of yeah, Terra Nigma. Um, boy, that would be really good. Uh, yeah, stuff like that. Uh, I'd rather see that stuff get remade because it needs a bigger audience. But That's yeah, no, I I mean I wouldn't be mad at a Chrono Trigger remake. It's just I don't feel like it's needed. That makes sense, for sure. All right, I think that ties up the show. Caleb, thanks for joining us, and and especially short notice again. I wish that yeah, it's fun. I wish that better person that we had originally had come on, but <laughs> this turned out fine. This is fine. We'll keep it. This was good enough. We'll I'm it. very happy to be the second, third, fourth, or even fifth choice, as long as it means that I can come here on this podcast I love and talk about books that I love and talk about video <laughs> games that I love. When all those three things come together in this amazing venn diagram uh i'm happy so uh jokes on you i guess <laughs> no it's all good really the the only other option we had was talking to each other and we thought yeah maybe we should bring on a guest because we didn't have anything to, to talk about that's getting so, old yeah yeah so, <laughs> so no thank thank you so much it was very it's actually quite enlightening um i wrote down the books that you uh you had mentioned earlier i do want to catch those so yeah keep the book reviews coming I, on your youtube channel i really like those i will i will thank you all right, that's been another Drunk Friend Podcast. As always, you can reach out to us uh, with questions or comments at drunkfriendpodcast at gmail.com. We might even read those out here on the show. And if you want to hear more podcasts, uh, you know, if you want to hear mine and Caleb's podcast or some other podcasts from the people I hang out with, you can check out polykill.com and poke around. Or if you got nothing to say in an email, no worries. We don't care. You can still contribute to the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you listen, and it helps us out a lot, and it only takes a second. It only takes a second. What are you even doing over there? 
You can also find us on social media. I'm on Twitter at TravPlaysGames. Alex is, of course, at SNESDrunk. And you can find Caleb J. Ross everywhere at Caleb J. Ross. That's the nice thing about having a name like Caleb J. Ross <laughs> is because you can just go by Caleb J. Ross. And you're yeah, the only Caleb J. Ross there is. Right. But all the creeps all know it now. So. <laughs> no no Bob, Bob Smith over here. Um, sorry, Bob Smith, if you're listening. Aww. Uh that music you heard at the beginning right there and uh, right here at the end was composed by our friend Coolor the theme song is called Electric Star Bounce and you can find a link to more of his music on the Buzzsprout podcast page and if our logo has you thirsty you can thank Josh Leslie for that that's right and you can even uh, I think if you go to the polykill.com website you can buy a drunk friend t-shirt or mug like Alex just got and it looks great I like that design so be sure to check that out and uh, Josh Leslie would appreciate if you did Uh, Be sure to catch us all on YouTube, and thanks for listening. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.